0: a few words on a piece of paper, a sudden moment of clarity, a life changed forever. Throughout the ages people have been challenged, inspired, moved and transformed by the words of the world's divine educators. My name is Sean Hinton and in this podcast Moments of Meaning I talk to people whose lives have been profoundly affected by the sacred writings of the Baha'i faith, and ask them about the story of how it happened. Today's guest is Merdad Barai, born in Tehran, raised in Toronto, and now living and working in Sydney, Australia as an advisor, investor, and social entrepreneur. This is Merdad's passage from his Moment of Meaning.
1: The call of Baha'u'llah is primarily directed against all forms of provincialism, all insularities and prejudices. If long-cherished ideals and time-honoured institutions, if certain social assumptions and religious formulae have ceased to promote the welfare of the generality of mankind, if they no longer minister to the needs of a continually evolving humanity, Let them be swept away and relegated to the limbo of obsolescent and forgotten doctrines. Why should these, in a world subject to the immutable law of change and decay, be exempt from the deterioration that must needs overtake every human institution? For legal standards, political and economic theories are solely designed to safeguard the interests of humanity as a whole, and not humanity to be crucified for the preservation of the integrity of any particular law or doctrine.
0: Merdod, tell me about the first time you came across this, and where were you at the time?
1: So the first time I read this passage was when I was about 14 or 15 years old. Uh, I was in Toronto, and at 14, 15, the world's raising questions. And I read this passage, and it just rang Uh, a real bell with me. It resonated with me. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with my experiences as a child. I was born in Tehran. I grew up there until I was about nine years old. And then we left uh, for Toronto. One of the things growing up as a child, as a Baha'i in Iran, was that you begin to grapple with some confusing things. If if people don't know who you are, they treat you like a normal person. Uh, But in those days, the prejudice against Baha'is Maybe not as bad as it is today, but it was certainly there. And Baha'is were considered Najess, which really means unclean or untouchable. Uh, And so there were moments in my school education or others, you'd run across, for example, teachers who didn't feel they could touch you or would touch you with the rubber tip of a pencil so that they wouldn't be tarnished by your uncleanliness. That's a real puzzling thing for a kid. You know, like, why is it that fairly well-intentioned, good-meaning, intelligent people believe this idea that I am untouchable or I'm unclean. Uh, and when I read this passage, it really raised this question for me of why is it that these historical doctrines, these, as it says, you know, social assumptions and religious formulae, why is it that they p- get perpetuated in societies? Why is it that people don't question them and say, look, whose interest is it serving that a minority group uh, is considered unclean? And is being denied certain rights of citizenship. And why is it that more people don't ask whether or not this philosophy, this doctrine, is actually appropriate anymore uh, in the twentieth century? And I think it just struck that chord. For me, it was like, you know what? We can question things. We can actually not take things for granted. And it was an incredibly liberating, eye-opening thing for me as a fifteen-year-old to suddenly have all the rules of society be something that you could question and maybe rethink.
0: Now, a young person might read this as a call to action, I think, to rise up and change the established order. Did it strike you in that way?
1: I didn't really read it as a call to action by everybody. I I really read it extremely personally. It was asking me to look inside and ask myself, what are the things that society has taught me to be fact when they're not fact? What are some of the rules that people are displaying, you know, in the way they run the community or a school or the city or or politics? And ask myself whether or not this test would apply. Because there, this passage proposes a test on whether, you know, these ideals and institutions should be kept or dismissed. And the test is worded three different ways. You know, does it promote the welfare of the generality of mankind? Does it minister to the needs of a continually evolving humanity? Does it safeguard the interests of humanity as a whole? For me, this became a touchstone. It became something I would just ask myself. If, for example, in this society, women are not allowed to drive, does that promote the welfare of the generality of mankind? No, it doesn't. So why is it there? Why isn't it in the limbo of obsolescent and forgotten doctrines? I saw it as permission to question, to think, to ask. And I think that was an incredibly empowering moment for a 15-year-old.
0: Your work involves advising companies and institutions. How does this passage about the change and decay that must affect human institutions, how does that inform your work?
1: When I was a partner at McKinsey and then even since then as I've done advisory work, one of the things that I've noticed is the rate of change in society is a lot faster than it was 20 years ago. And so this whole idea of more disruptive strategies or organization transforming themselves is way more important than it even was a couple of decades ago. And yet what ends up happening is that it's very easy for prevailing assumptions about the world or prevailing strategies to just be perpetuated. So I think what this passage is talking about is not easy to do, and it's particularly not easy to do yourself. But what it raises for me as a, as a guidance, as maybe, as you put it, a call to action, is the importance of at least asking that question. You know, why do we do the things we do? And should we keep doing it this way? Uh, and I think not enough of us ask questions like that.
0: As you've returned to this passage over time, do you feel that any of your own assumptions or ideas that perhaps you took for granted when you were younger now need to be relegated to the limbo of obsolescence, as the passage says?
1: Without doubt. I mean, if you look at Persian culture, even as Baha'is, we espouse certain things like the oneness of humanity, the equality of the races, equality of men and women, putting science on equal footing with faith. And I think if I compare my great grandparents' beliefs on those things with my grandparents, with my parents, to me, to my son, you could definitely see a trajectory of change generation to generation on all those things. So yeah, there were certainly interpretations about the role of women in society that needed to change. There were interpretations about race that needed to change. There were certainly class-based distinctions that needed to be challenged. And I'm glad that society is moving and challenging those. I think one of the particular challenges of our time today, Sean, is around how difficult it is to be an independent thinker now because of the fake news, because of the echo chambers, because certain messages are blasted at people so repetitively that they believe them to be true. And so we've ended up in a place where... It's more difficult than ever to do what this passage is asking us to do, because you don't know where to go to look for truth. And I think that's one of the things that's always concerned me with the younger generation is how do we get them to actually develop a desire to you know, be inquisitive and uh, have respect for other people's opinions and go out and search and question and all that, which, which is not easy.
0: Many of the passages that we look at on this program are very personal in nature. They address individual change. But this one is a real call to an external orientation. It it demands a commitment to broader societal change. Has that affected your life or work at all?
1: So about 15 years ago, my wife Roy and I started a not-for-profit called High Resolves. And what High Resolves does is it creates experiential learning opportunities in schools, so that young people can begin to develop some of the skills that we've been talking about. They begin to develop a sense of their identity as being part of a shared humanity with infinite diversity. They begin to become more independent thinkers that question things. They uh, have a more holistic view of what a just and inclusive society looks like. Uh, And they begin to learn how to be inclusive leaders how they move groups of people forward. Well, this program's now grown. Uh, There are about half a million young people who've gone through the program. We're in about a dozen countries. Uh, And so in some ways, that is our contribution to the system change that you're talking about. But I think that that's a drop in the bucket. Uh, I think that the scale of this problem in terms of the transformation the world needs is orders of magnitude higher than what any single initiative can do. And really what This quote, if you go back to your point about the call to action, I think at 55, I have a different interpretation of it than I did at 15. It isn't as much personal anymore. It is societal. I mean, obviously it's both, but now that societal side speaks to me. And mainly because some of the language in this quote.
0: Let's hear the passage again.
1: The call of Baha'u'llah is primarily directed against all forms of provincialism, all insularities and prejudices. If long-cherished ideals and time-honored institutions, if certain social assumptions and religious formulae have ceased to promote the welfare of the generality of mankind, if they no longer minister to the needs of a continually evolving humanity, let them be swept away and relegated to the limbo of obsolescent and forgotten doctrines. Why should these, in a world subject to the immutable law of change and decay, Be exempt from the deterioration that must needs overtake every human institution. For legal standards, political and economic theories are solely designed to safeguard the interests of humanity as a whole, and not humanity to be crucified for the preservation of the integrity of any particular law or doctrine. If you look at the last sentence, crucified is a very strong word, and not humanity to be crucified for the preservation of the integrity of any particular law or doctrine. What I see happening, whether it's about fossil fuels or about what we decide our country is or the way we deal with the pandemic and, you know, is it is it a violation of personal freedom to have to wear a mask? These are really amazing examples of where, for the preservation of a political party or a law or a doctrine, we're adopting behaviors that are punishing humanity. And you look at the death rates from COVID, you look at the disasters that are following from, you know, extreme climate events. We look at what's happening with race after 400 years of injustice in the U.S., and we still have not been able to get rid of systematic racism. Well, these are all examples. These are ideas whose time has long passed, and we need to discover, we need to adopt new legal standards, political economic theories that are there to to safeguard the future interests of humanity. And that's a societal call to action, no doubt about it.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about the context for the passage, when it was written and for whom?
1: So this passage was written in 1938. It was published in 1938. uh, And so you can imagine the context uh, of the world. It was written by Shoghi Effendi, who was the great-grandson of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. Shoghi Effendi was an an important figure in the history of the Baha'i faith, and he also was a bridge between East and West, an Eastern man educated at Oxford. And so his English is incredibly powerful, but he kind of combines all these different worlds. And the style is uh, longer sentences. And many times his writings, I feel it's a bit like a jeweler would put a, you know, black velvet and there's a jewel is presented on top of the black velvet. So he, he paints the context and then puts a jewel in, in it. And I think that there's a way in which the, the writing style creates an inescapable uh, logical position that you have no choice but to succumb to. You look at the way this argument is built in this passage uh, where he starts by asking, you know, makes a claim but then asks a question. Uh, and then asks another question, and then basically puts a coda to you, which is a statement that is so powerful and obvious, and yet we're all ignoring it. And so that is Shoki Effendi's uh, gift, I think, to many of us in the world, was putting a lens on the world that allowed us to see what's really going on, questioning it, and arriving at a more satisfactory understanding of the processes at work. And in a way, that is empowering and motivating and gets you to really think about what it means for your own life.
0: We've talked about many of the ideas in this passage, but how does it make you feel when you read it?
1: I love this passage. I really feel a passion, a connection, a very deep connection. And maybe it's because of my experiences as a young person, you know, in Iran, living in a society that had failed to ask this question, that was living with religious formulae that had been outdated. They had definitely ceased to promote the welfare, the generality of mankind, but but people weren't challenging them. And then seeing it throughout my studies, like this has been something that has been relevant for 40 years of my life. And I keep coming back to it. It's like an old friend. It's a true north. My feeling towards it is a deep sense of love and uh, belonging, uh, maybe, or connection. Maybe is a better way of describing it. There's no doubt about it in my mind that this has shaped many aspects of my life, whether it's the personal side that we talked about, the way I advised or even thought about businesses, the way I invest in technology companies today, uh, or all the not-for-profit work we're doing through High Resolves in terms of the the way we want to activate human responsibility in millions of people. This passage is at the heart of a lot of that.
0: Merdad, thank you so much for joining me and sharing this passage on Moments of Meaning. The passage chosen by Merdad is part of a letter written by Shoghi Effendi, who succeeded Abdu'l-Bahá as head of the Baha'i faith, and was the great-grandson of its prophet-founder, Baha'u'llah. The scope of Shoghi Effendi's writings was vast, as well as timeless translations of original scriptures Shoghi Effendi clarified in exquisitely beautiful and powerful language the laws and fundamental verities of the faith. His writings also showed us how to understand and interpret world events in the light of the Baha'i teachings. The excerpt discussed in this episode appears in a collection of seven letters written between 1929 and 1936 that was published under the title the World Order of Baha'u'llah. In addition to charting the development of the Baha'i community and the evolution of the administrative order that coordinates its efforts and ensures its unity, the World Order Letters address subjects of global governance, economics and constitutional law. They interrogate prevalent assumptions about human nature and offer profound insights into the spiritual dimension of civilization and the dynamics of social change as conceived by Baha'u'llah, unveiling an awe-inspiring vision of the future towards which humanity is moving. In describing this vision, Shoghi Effendi explains that, far from aiming at the subversion of the existing foundations of society, it seeks to broaden its basis, to remould its institutions in a manner consonant with the needs of an ever-changing world, by calling for a wider loyalty, for a larger aspiration than any that has animated the human race. For more about the Baha'i writings, head to Baha'i.org. For the podcast notes for this episode, try Baha'iTeachings.org forward slash Moments of Meaning. Moments of Meaning is presented by Sean Hinton, sound engineering by Jamie Heath, researched by Nabil Khabipur, and produced by Alex Liz and the team at Baha'iTeachings.org.